Bibles of the book of First Corinthians chapter 1. We are simply going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm to you I'm sorry, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, this morning we are going to take another look at the introductory aspects of 1 Corinthians. We are taking a lot of time for these nine verses, uh, and that's all that Paul uses to introduce this. He's going to very quickly jump into the matters at hand in this letter. He is not going to lay a lot of uh, theology at the onset of this, and yet there is going to be, as we address each issue that has confronted the church in Corinth, he is going to go to a theological point. At the introductory aspects, we have really just a hand not even a handful, just a couple of very powerfully presented uh, theological perspectives that we need to consider and that are going to be thematic to the book. They are the foundations of his confrontation of the Church of Corinth. Um, they are not simply just niceties of, of just... Uh, being able of being a good writer or knowing how to confront people, uh, but they have some very important uh, and necessary understandings of biblical principles to then be applied that the people of Corinth needed to be have applied to their own lives that would resolve many, if not all, of the issues that were at play in their church. Certainly, the primary issues that were uh, creating many others as well would have been resolved if they had put these truths, these principles into practice in their life and in their church. And so we are going to take a little more time than just one week to get through these nine verses. We looked at verses 1, 2, and 3 last week. Uh, we'll try to get through a handful more this morning. Um, it will probably take one more week. There's one further aspect of theology I want to discuss as we get into this that uh, I believe many have uh, wrongly understood Paul's statements here, and we want to uh, make sure we clarify them as we get into this book. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer this morning. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to You and pray that You might work in it mightily. We commit ourselves to You and submit our minds, our hearts to Your direction. We pray that we might be attentive to Your instruction today. Lord, guard our hearts and minds, from the arrogance of, assume, of assumption that these principles and these truths are already acquired and in play in our lives. 
Lord, by your grace and mercy, each one who has called upon you has certainly received that which we will look into this morning. Lord, we know that to varying degrees these principles are working in us by our choice. Even as they were failing to work in the Corinthian church, And Lord, help us to humble ourselves to them, to be of that spirit and that mind this morning. Lord, we further pray that you might guard this time, and as always, from opinion or error. You might guard it from the wisdom of men, that your spirit might have liberty to speak and move this morning. The wisdom that is from above, might be clearly evident. We can pray for your work in our midst, to your glory. Amen. Well, we saw in the introduction of First Corinthians last week that Paul, um, recognizing his own passive role, really, um, that is that he certainly needed to respond and be obedient to God when God met him on the Damascus Road, and then gave him some instruction. You head into Damascus, you look for this gentleman, you're going to have to submit yourself to his role in this process of your conversion, if you will. And um, Paul had some steps of obedience to demonstrate his willingness to surrender, but we find that Paul, when it comes to declaring his authority, acknowledges to the Corinthians that this is something that I receive from the Lord. It's not something that I demanded, it's not something that I prayed for myself. It was a calling of God upon me, and this authority has rested upon my shoulders by and through God's will. He has similarly had a calling upon you. And this idea of calling we're going to investigate extensively next week, but He has similarly called you to something. That in your reception of Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you, that is not the end of our calling, but really the very beginning of it. He has called you to be saints, to be holy ones, to be called out and separate. And He places that demand on them immediately, saying that you are sanctified, that is, you are set apart. You are called to be saints, holy ones. Why? And with whom you are are called together with everyone who is called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you have this family this accountability, not only to one another, not only to me as your apostle, as as your father, uh, the one that brought you Christ, brought you the gospel, but you have this accountability to the entire body of Christ universal, all those who have called upon the name of the Lord, that we can have a responsibility to be receptive to their instruction, to their rebuke and correction. For all of us share this calling to be holy ones, to be saints, to be set apart to something unique and different. Within his greeting, he also has spoken of the grace and peace that Christ gives. And many have said, well, this is just a common greeting. I want to share with you that it is uh, not so. That when you come to God's Word, it takes what is common and makes it uncommon. And we need to recognize that. That what Paul means by grace, that what he means from peace, is very different than what other Roman citizens who simply write grace or peace mean by it. For he is talking about that which we receive from God through Jesus Christ. And he stipulates that, grace and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. And so what is a common greeting maybe in many letters becomes an uncommon greeting when it comes from the hand of Paul guided by the Holy Spirit of God. And we fill up these words with meaning. More substantial than just, hi, how are you? Hope you're doing fine. It is unfortunate, really, that in our forms of greeting, we have taken some very precious concepts and have simply 
made them common, and it would be a wonderful thing if we could make them uncommon again. That in our greetings, we might share these kinds of uh, understandings of things higher and nobler than just hello. Um, We make statements like, I hope uh, everything is good with you. It usually means, how are you? And our implied answer is, class, fine. fine. And it creates a hollowness to what is really a very personal inquiry. How are you? We might add, what have you been up to? And the smart aleck answer is uh, 5 foot, 9, 10, whatever, 11. But we find in this letter to the Corinthians not a loose use of these words and not just a callous use as this is just something that we're going to format into this letter and many commentators have implied that and I don't find it the case. In fact, I find this concept of grace and peace through God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ inherently necessary for what is to come and come very immediately in the very next verse. Because we're going to find Paul thanking God for the Corinthian church when you read the rest of the letter and you kind of scratch your head, is, is there anything to be thankful for when it comes to these, this group of people? I mean, he must really be struggling here to come up with a few verses of thanksgiving with about them. How can we be thankful for them? Uh, and yet he says that he thanks his God always concerning them. Why? Well, we go back to that word that he just introduced in verse 3, because of the grace of God that has been extended towards you. That you have become the willing, and that is very important, the willing recipients of God's grace. And because of that, I have to thank my God always concerning you. It is not that I thank Him because you are so talented a group of people. I am not thanking Him because of your extraordinary mental capacities to grasp truth. I am not thanking Him because you have incredible natural gifts or that you have generated within yourself some level of faith that is unheard of anywhere else in the Christian world. I am thanking you I'm thanking God for you because of what He is doing in your life and that what you have willingly received from Him. He is immediately already dealing with the issues at hand in Corinth. But He is doing it by reminding them of the underlying truth of our belief. What do we believe? Who are we in Christ? Upon what rock do we stand in our Christian experience? And he's already reminding them immediately that there is no basis for me to be proud of anything. There is no foundation here for me to be congratulatory over myself, nor to seek my own within the family of God, because I find that I am the one who has been the recipient of grace. And just simply by using that word, I am making a statement, and that is, this statement very powerfully is, I do not deserve any of what is to come in this list. I am undeserving of this. It immediately calls us to recognize our humble state. That what I am deserving of is punishment and death, misery and destruction. And it is the grace of God that has been extended towards me. That is this favor of God that I could not have earned, do not deserve, in which I stand today. And that all that I might count precious to me in my Christian experience is not of my own manufacturing, but is a product of the grace of God at work on my behalf. And this immediately sets us back in terms of this aggressive fighting that we find going on in Corinth. It is immediately diffused if we can begin to grasp 
the necessity of God's grace in our life. And its necessity is very real. Because we, like the people of Corinth, are undeserving of God's favor. Not only because we've done a few things bad, because, uh, but rather because in our very essence of what we are, we are not deserving. We are sinners separated from God by our own sinfulness historically from our parentage and sinful in our own choice. And so we stand before God not arrogantly declaring what our rights are, but rather joyously proclaiming what God's favor is. And once we grasp what Paul is seeking to communicate right off at the beginning, and it goes, it'll stretch into these, this list, look at it, look at how much the Corinthians did in this. It sounds at first like he's trying to tell them that they're a wonderful group of people. But listen very carefully once again to who is given the credit for anything going on positively at the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth. Listen to it. The grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then first line, of course, God is faithful. The entire tenor that, that Paul takes right off here at the beginning is to set the Corinthians' corrective action right away. We're going to set you on corrective action by shifting your concept of who you are in Christ. It is not to your glory that you are in Christ. It is not to be, go around pat you on the back. Oh, you made a wise choice there in accepting Christ as your Savior. And that shows that there must be something inherently in you that is um, a value. Wrong. You made the most basic, most fundamentally sound choice there is among men, and that is you chose life over death. You might say, well, why is it so rare then? Because men are stupid. In our sin, we are that foolish. But this one choice of receiving Christ as our Savior defies us. Why? Because of our arrogance. Because it requires of us to acknowledge the truth that we are powerless, that we are enemies of God, that we are criminals that deserve judgment and punishment. And Paul wants to remind them immediately all the things you take great pride in in your Christian experience came from outside of who you are. We can already see it beginning. Um, He's already spoken in verse 5 right away of this, that in their speech and in their knowledge, that is in their, and we're going to, of course, deal with the gift of tongues in your speech, in your utterances, in your communication, your capacity to speak in various languages when the need arises, um, in your idea of knowledge, and, and we're going to have to deal with that, of, of, their, of the concept of prophetic understanding and of, and of their, their gift, their spiritual gift of, of knowledge and what that entails, that they were taking credit for that, that somehow they were, instead of glorifying God, they are glorifying themselves in that and using it profanely. And Paul immediately says, listen, I thank you that you were enriched with that, but um, let's don't forget where it came from. You were enriched in everything by Him. And all that speech that you might take credit for is His. All that knowledge that you might get puffed up in, it's His knowledge. It was Christ. It wasn't generated in you. It wasn't something that was formed in you. It was formed in Christ. And you are the recipient of this wonderful gift of His knowledge and His speech. These are things that came by Him. You have this confirmation among yourselves 
that, uh, oh, we, and, and you're going to hear it. I mean, Paul's going to quote these Corinthians. He's going to quote them. I hear you say this, and I hear you say this. And do you think by claim, making, taking claim to these various activities and various uh, aspects of who baptized you, of who's teaching you're following, uh, that uh, somehow that confirms you, that you're a better Christian than someone else? that you're able to speak in, in languages that you never studied, that somehow that may, means more than to speak the gospel in plain English. He didn't say English, by the way, plain Greek. He says, that doesn't confirm you as a believer. That's stuff that I can eat meat and my brother doesn't eat meat. And ha ha, that confirms I'm a better Christian than him. That does, that's not what confirms you. Again, this is an aspect of God's grace. What is it that confirms us? It is the testimony of Christ. That is the confirmation for the believer. It is the testimony of Christ in us. It is not that we'll look at you and say, wow, you're a really good person. You're really nice. And, and, and you, you, you know, do a lot of nice things for the people. And, and, and uh, boy, I wish I knew you better. Oh, that we would be quick to correct them and say, no, 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 no. I'm as nasty and selfish and sinful a person as any as the next. Maybe more so. But Christ has made a difference in my life. And it is Christ in us that is the confirmation of this salvific experience. It's the testimony of Christ that is confirmed in us. It is not our own faith that is confirmed, but rather it is Christ in us that confirms our faith. So that you come short in no gift. And again, we're going to talk about the spiritual gifts when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to have to investigate them. But right away, we say, okay, you're not, you don't come short in any gift. I mean, there's no gift that's missing out of your group. Where does it come from? It comes from the grace of God through Christ Jesus. We're, all, we're still dealing with um, this whole sentence structure. All being built out of the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Every gift, yep, you have lots of gifts in your church. God has really blessed you, but re let's remind ourselves that it was God's blessing us that we did not generate these gifts within us. Rather, the Spirit gives them as He chooses. And we're going to have to spend extensive time studying that. I'm looking forward to doing that with you. Because already, Paul is beginning to address some of the issues that he plans to take on at length later on. But he wants to establish this. That all that you're taking, that you're glorying in, is not of your... Production is through Christ. And that your glorying in your in the grace of God needs to be glorying in God and not in yourselves. Look how wonderful I am. I have done this and I have this and I have this and I'm following after this and I've been baptized like this and, and I've been able to have this gift of the Spirit and, and I can exercise this liberty and on and it goes and it all focuses and comes back to me. And God says, all the things you're taking credit for are gifts of mine to you. Why are you taking credit for them when it was me that produced them in you? And this is the foundational principle that Paul lays out before he starts into it. And he's going to start into it very quickly. I mean... We start off verse 4 with, I thank my God. And by verse 10, we're saying, now I plead with you. He's going to get to it very fast. He's going to want to address some things right on the head very quickly. And there are going to be some tough things he's going to have to address. There's some very difficult issues at hand. He's going to do it boldly. And he's going to do it um, from our perspective, from our society's perspective, almost tactlessly. 
just going to blurt these things out and say, this is of Satan. And yet is what the church needed. The foundation behind it is a grasping that all that we have, we have by God's unmerited favor, by His grace. He chose to give this to us. He is the one who has granted in us this wondrous principles of we have access to the knowledge of His grace. We have access to this language uh, and a capacity to speak that in that day. We have this testimony of Christ that, that this confirmation is assurance of our salvation. We have no shortness of gifts and we can eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the work of God in us. And his statement here, again, they were looking for Christ's revelation. They're, this is it. I'm waiting for Christ to come to me in a vision or a dream. But what he's referring to is the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes again, you're going to be eagerly waiting for it. Why? Because God's been at work in you. Not because somehow you have some advantage over others in the church or that your church has some advantage over another church, but rather you have an advantage because of Christ in you that is similarly shared with all others. We need someone to go out there and quiet that down. We have because of Christ's working, all the tools to wait for Christ's coming. What does that mean? It means that we can endure. That we, that that salvation that was begun in us will be completed in Christ. And that isn't to my glory, but to Christ's. That I can eagerly wait and I can sit there and get puffed up again like, like many in Corinth got. Um, that somehow I have superior knowledge, I have superior faith, I have superior uh, Christian experience than others because look at how I am enduring till Christ's coming. Look at how I am living the expectant Christian life of Christ's return. And in the midst of all that, you're miring yourself down in sin. Or you're failing to recognize that all our waiting for Christ's revelation is dependent upon what He has provided for us and not on ourselves. And it moves us to humility. Ultimately, verse 8, is the Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end. You may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ Himself has to be at work in us so that we can be blameless when He comes. That even this capacity or this condition of blamelessness isn't something I can generate. It's not because I walk this perfect Christian life, but rather it's because Christ makes up the great debt in righteousness that I cannot produce in myself. And it is this underlying principle of grace that Paul wants to communicate to the Corinthians at the very onset of his letter. And it is this understanding of grace that we need to meditate on as we consider our role in Christ, our Christian living, and our interaction with other believers. Our interaction with the world. Our interaction with righteousness versus sin, with temptation. How are we going to engage if we do not begin to grasp grace? We will always take it to our own credit. Every victory will be ours. Every measure of Christian experience um, that we might gain a little bit in we will be self-congratulatory if we do not understand the underpinning of grace. And I want to remind you that when that happens, what we are doing is robbing God. 
for he does this work. We are the recipients of it. And simply the that. We are the recipients of a gift. And the marvel of this gift is the wondrousness and the expansiveness of what God has given to us. And that doesn't go to our credit. It doesn't go to affirming us, but rather it goes to affirming the wonder of who He is. And it is there that our Christian lives are lived out. I am living out the gifts of God in my life. Um, and I'm not doing a very good job of it, but I'm trying to improve that every day. I'm seeking to live out my salvation before others and among the family of God in my service, in my, in my work ethic, in my uh, resistance against temptation, all of it. I'm trying to work it out, not so that you can pat me on the back, but that you can give glory to God who has enabled me to live a life of faith. This is the evidence that we've begun to grasp grace. Is when not only are we a little embarrassed to be congratulated for doing our duty. Remember Luke? When we have done everything that we have been commanded to do, what is our response? We are unprofitable servants who have only done what was our duty to do. That's our response. When we've done everything God's commanded. I haven't done that yet. That makes me less than unprofitable. Because I have not yet achieved that status. And so, um, not only should we be a little bit embarrassed when people seek to uh, pat us on the back for some minuscule service to Christ, um, but we should even shun it. Avoid it. Seeking to be a reflector only and nothing more. I am here to reflect Christ. And if anything, I'm in the way of that being a good reflection. The part that I have contributed out of who I am outside of Christ or who I am in my flesh is going to do injury and damage to that reflection rather than to enhance it. As I read through my pastoral books and um, I have several on my library, um, the care and feeding of volunteers and things like that, and what it takes to keep a volunteer army going. Which, by the way, that's what the church is. 100% volunteer. Um, I know, I, well, maybe except for me. So it's 99.9% volunteer. We don't pay you for anything that you do, from what I can tell, unless something's going on that I don't know about. It's interesting to hear the world's wisdom about this, that one of the things I'm supposed to be doing, and I don't, and I guess I should apologize to you, maybe that's been discouragement to you. Uh, one thing I'm supposed to do on a regular basis is write you thank you notes. And that really will encourage you in your ministries to get a thank you note from pastor, thank you for your faithful service, and such and such, such and such. Um, and that's what the world says should happen, and we respond to that because we all like to be thanked when we put out and... And uh, we appreciate that somebody noticed and, and it's about time I got my due. Did you hear that? It's about time I got my credit. It's about time somebody appreciated me. Do you have a problem with any of that? That's the wisdom of the world. It's not the wisdom of Christ. In fact, God says that's foolishness. You Remember what Christ had to say to the Pharisees who were very concerned about making sure everybody credited them for their acts of worship? God says they've gotten what their credit. There will be nothing in heaven credited. And so I'm reading a book like that and uh, you know how to keep people encouraged and keep from becoming discouraged. I don't know when that became the pastor's job, but apparently it is now. Um, according to my books, that that's one of my main responsibilities is to keep you from burning out. Um, I really want to do a side sermon right now. But 
Um, if you're burning out, I'm going to do the side sermon. If you're burning out, it's your own fault. Put some fuel in the fire. And it's not my job. Open your Bibles, read them. Fuel your fire. Get on your knees and speak to your Savior. Fuel your fire. If you're burning out, it's not my job to rescue you. And being put on a shelf, it will not solve your problems. Fuel your fire. Come to church. Come to prayer meeting. Come every chance you get. Fuel your fire. There's no reason for Christians to burn out unless they're doing it in their own strength. Now, get back to if what fuels your fire is people patting you on the back, then guess what? You need to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. That we do nothing in the service of our Lord except by His grace. And therefore, I don't look for credit for anything. And in fact, when I really comprehend that everything I'm doing for Christ originated in Christ and His grace toward me, I would never want to rob Him of the glory for that by accepting it for myself. Ever. And so I would never want to rob you of the opportunity to glorify God by glorifying you instead. You see, when we accept the world's wisdom and it comes into the church, that is exactly what happens. Is that we become worldly. And we say, I will only serve if. And because I'm not appreciated enough, my service is gone. I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to be participate. I'm not going to be involved. Um, I didn't get my way. That happens frequently. And all I look at and I say, where have I stopped preaching grace? Where have I stopped communicating? Where have we failed to understand that everything we do, every opportunity we have to serve, every opportunity we have to minister one to another, every opportunity we have to share Christ is a blessing of His grace. I don't deserve the chance to serve. I don't deserve it. And once we have that kind of an attitude towards our Christian walk, it is suddenly like, I don't need anyone to come along and say, well, I appreciate the fact that uh, you are very uh, upright in your handling of finances in our community. I don't need you to Thank me for that. I'm an unprofitable servant. I've only done what my duty is to do. Why would I not do that? Well, I want to thank you for using your gifts in the church. And that, I mean, I even have a card that they said, here's what you need to write to your parishioners whenever they serve God in your church. And I mean, I have a script. I mean, these, these pastoral help books, I mean, they're just... They're not pastoral helps. They're pastoral replacement books. But um, they have the script there. This is what you need to write. Well, do you want me to start doing that? I'll start robbing you of your eternal reward if that's what we need to do, but to be encouraged in ministry. Or are we going to contemplate the grace of God? I have a privilege to live the Christian life. I have a privilege to know Christ. I have Christ in me. And whatever I have, and Paul communicated this very effectively. Whatever I am, that is to the benefit of the kingdom of heaven, originated in God, and therefore it's to him that gets the glory. And so um, I run this race uh, with a prize set before me, certainly, but that prize isn't for the high calling of Kirk. The prize that Paul had before him in Philippians was a high calling of Christ. We want to honor and glorify our Savior. We want to please Him. We want to hear those words when we get to heaven. We want to see that countenance before us of pleasure when He considers our lives here on earth. And we're not going to want to get there and say, well, you only served if men applauded you. 
And so there's no applause here for you. You've already received your reward. And Paul is very cautious about this. And he sees in the Corinthian church an attitude that is mushrooming into lots of problems, an attitude that somehow they had earned this, an attitude that somehow they had generated this stuff, an attitude that they were the authors of it all. And Paul says, I didn't start any of this in you. Apollos didn't start any of this in you. Peter didn't start any of this in you. You didn't generate any of these gifts. They're the spirits and he distributes them the way he wants. You've lost track of your part in the equation of grace. In the equation of grace, your part is the least significant. Because you are simply the recipients. In the equation of grace, it's been God doing this, God doing this, God doing this, God doing this, and you have simply by your will received His work. And receiving a gift isn't a great accomplishment. Is it? If it is, then we need to go around the room and congratulate every one of you for accepting the gifts at Christmas time you received. I'm sure all of you sat down at Christmas dinner and took time to congratulate each of your children. Well, oh, I am so impressed with your receiving of the gifts we bought for you. I know that was a lot of effort on your part. right? And we thank them for the manner in which they received the gift that we gave to them and the incredible energy that was exerted by them to do that wondrous work of receiving the gifts we bought for them, wrapped for them, and gave to them. Did any of you do that Christmas dinner? Well, there's always next year. Maybe. No. The reception is not a thing that we take glory in. I get to stand here and preach the gospel. I don't even understand that. I'm a shy person. I don't like talking in front of people. For the first six, seven years of doing this, I was physically sick every Sunday. I don't know where that went to, but it, it's gone now. Praise God, that's gone. Okay? I don't get this. And so the glory has to go to God, because I know what my capacities are, and they're not up to snuff. I've accepted something that I couldn't earn, that I don't deserve. I have no right to expect it to continue. Stand in the grace of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that is where we are in every facet of the Christian life, as we are standing in the midst of the grace of Christ Jesus. And every facet of my Christian life is a benefit I don't deserve. And yes, even serving ungrateful people, even <laughs> maybe particularly serving ungrateful people, maybe that's really where it really shows that we're really servants of the Most High God. And we really have an understanding of how much grace was involved in giving each one of us salvation and the tools to worship and serve God. Maybe it is particularly with the undeserving. Paul says, you want to know what I've endured? I kept ministering. I kept ministering because of the grace of Christ in me. Even when people beat me up because of it, stoned me to death because of it, even when people um, ran me out of town on a rail, even when I was ignored or uh, opposed from within and from without, even when I'm in jail and people are still taking pot shots at me, um, by God's grace, as long as the gospel is preached, I'm fine with it. Why? Why could Paul say these things? Why could he endure these things? Because he understood grace. And his part in the grace equation, which was, oh, I need it. That's it. It's my part. I need it. 
I'll accept it. Are you going to congratulate me for that? For coming to God and saying, I need you and I accept you. Do I congratulate myself? No. And so he comes to the Corinthians and he doesn't say, I thank you for you. I thank you for being who you are. And by the way, that is exactly what the world is trying to tell people to say to one another to build each other up. Thank you for being you. How many of you heard that? In school, thank you for being you. We're encouraged to say that. We're encouraged to tell people, oh, thank you for being you. God has a problem with that. Because <laughs> when you're being you, you're deserving of punishment, of judgment. Paul doesn't say, thank you for being you, Corinthians. He says, I thank my God for what he's done to you. I thank my God for what he's done to you. Because I know what you're like. And now it's time for you to understand the grace as well. We do not congratulate ourselves, nor each other, nor other men of God, which is what they were doing, and we're going to address that in a couple weeks, for the work of God. How dare we? Paul himself says, I didn't die for you. I didn't give any gifts to you. I'm an unprofitable servant. All I did was what I was supposed to do. My duty. I did the minimum requirements. How could I do anything less when I think of all the grace I've received? And it is this understanding that changes our entire attitude towards worship. Changes our entire attitude towards the Christian life. It is no longer, oh, I've got to do that? If that's your attitude towards any part of the Christian life, I gotta go do devotions. I gotta read the Bible. Oh man. You don't get grace. Do you understand how many Christians don't have access to the Bible? You have it on your iPhone, and you have it on your computer, you have it on your lap, you have it in multiple translations, and and we complain. Because we don't understand grace. What a privilege it is to have these things from God's hand. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. It created contentions. It created schisms. It created hard feelings, bitterness between the saints. Why? Because none of them quite figured out grace. This is God's grace. We are the stewards of the manifold grace of God, Peter says. That's all we are. Stewards of the manifold, many-sided grace of God. We are the stewards of it, not the owners of it, not the producers of it. We are the stewards of it. We are simply the managers. And brethren, there is a time for managers to be reckoned. There's a day of reckoning for every manager where he'll have to answer to the one to whom he has been given this management. And brethren, <laughs> we must be prepared to answer for what you've done with God's grace. And what a shameful thing it would be to stand before God and says, you gave me all your grace and I took credit for it all. I refuse to exercise and to manage your grace in my church because they didn't appreciate me enough. You're going to say that to your Savior? I refused to be a steward of your grace because I wasn't getting enough credit. Because I wasn't appreciated. Because I wasn't getting my way. Whether it's what goes on in the church at Corinth or what goes on in the church today, a fundamental attitude will be produced within any body of people that is self-seeking and self-aggrandizing 
when we begin forgetting where we are in the grace equation. We are the recipients and nothing more. We have received something that we're going to have to be answered for, to manage, and to use, not to our own glory, not to our own satisfaction, not to our own um, pleasure, not to our own spiritual growth. I've heard that excuse used. Well, I only use this in private for my own spiritual growth. Well, that's pretty selfish. So I explain that to God on Judgment Day. God has given you His grace. When you understand that that's something you don't deserve, you count it as precious, every facet of it. And you manage it as expertly as you know how and better than that because you have instruction in God's Word how to do it. You have the Spirit within you helping you to do that, which is just more of His grace. And we exercise that not to our glory, but the glory of Christ. When that attitude permeates the church, the problems that we see going on in churches today and the problems we're going to see we're going on in the church of Corinth evaporate. They're gone. Who cares what color the carpet is when we understand we don't deserve a building? Church in Haiti doesn't care what color the carpet is. They don't ever expect to have one. Oh, and we understand grace. I mean, truly meditate on it. Recognizing that where everything is coming from, that we have the resources we have, we will be very careful. And not only managing them well, but making sure that in that management, God receives the glory for it all.